Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. This morning I'm going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We, we covered the first verse of Romans chapter 7. And we're going to start this morning at the second verse. Verse 1 sets forth the premise that governs this entire section that we're, we're discussing here. And, the, and the, the premise is about the limits of the law. Paul says in, in the first verse, I, I speak to them that know the law. And then he establishes the truth about the law that he wants to expound upon. The law has dominion over a man only as long as he lives. This is something that carries over from chapter 6. Amen. The, the dominion of the law ends when you die. It doesn't have any authority on you after you die. And so we're, we're in this illustration now, this segment now where Paul's building on that. And we spent, a, we spent an entire Sunday morning a few weeks ago on verse 1, the single verse. And we, we, in doing that, thoroughly established the premise that Paul is building on. Now, if you weren't here for that, I'll, I'll be tying back into that. And I'll mention some of that again. But if you missed that and you need to catch up on it, the, the recording of it is on uh, our PLC ministry site, uh, PLC Media Ministry on Facebook. You can listen to the audio of all of our Roman series, all of our Sunday mornings, a lot of our Sunday nights. All of those things go on the PLC Media Ministry site on Facebook. Check it out. Log into it. If you miss one of these Sundays on Romans, go back and catch up on it because this thing builds one week upon another, one verse upon another, one chapter upon another. Amen. And, and so we're, we're reaching back and getting a hold of those premises and those principles that we laid out a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to tie them in this morning. Amen. So this morning we get to the example that Paul uses and the implications of that example. First, I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 7 all together. Now, I'm not going to get all the way through all six verses again this morning. I intended to, but we're not going to quite make it there. But we're going to start with verse 1, which we've already covered, and go through verse 6. Romans chapter 1, or chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. It says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not 
in the oldness of the letter. That's the entire text of this section that we're in. We're starting with verse 2. And I really want to combine verses 2 and 3. It'll best suit our purposes for addressing what's going on here. So I'm going to read those two verses together again. It says, For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Amen? So, to make his point, the point that the law applies only while a man is alive, Paul uses an analogy to marriage. First, he establishes a simple fact about marriage. In God's plan, marriage is to be broken only by death. The marriage vow binds a husband and a wife together as long as they both live. And we understand, and every couple that I've ever counseled for marriage, I've told them, divorce is not God's will. God never planned, never desired for a man and a woman who are joined together in marriage, that marriage to end in divorce. It has always been God's intention that that which is joined together in marriage is forever joined together until death alone shall part you. Amen? Now, based upon that fact, Paul sets up this example. It has to do with the woman marrying another man. If she does so while her husband is still alive, Paul says, then she transgresses God's law and becomes an adulteress. If she does so after her first husband is dead, then she's done no wrong, and she is morally pure in God's sight. That's what the text of the verse says. Now, let me start by saying this. The primary purpose of these two verses is not to teach on marriage. Paul's not giving a lecture on divorce and remarriage. This is not a discourse on marriage. His point is to use a well-known fact about God's marriage law to illustrate how we're set free from the law. The fact is that marriage is binding until death, but no further. It doesn't go any further than that. Its authority does not extend beyond death. When you married someone and you married them for life, you were bound to them for life, but once they died, you're no longer bound to them. That's the point that Paul is making. He's not giving instruction on marriage and remarriage. His point is that death sets an individual free from the law. Now, why do you say that, Brother McCall? I say that because of this. Some people use this passage to teach that the only thing that can break the marriage bond is death. They even go so far as to declare that divorce for any reason is wrong and that if you're divorced for any reason and you marry again while your first spouse is still alive, then you are living in adultery. And when they do so, they, they've applied the, the letter, the gist of what Paul said here, but they missed the point entirely. Paul does say, that death breaks the marriage bond and frees a person to remarry. But since he's making a point about the limits of the law and not teaching on divorce, he simplifies the problem. 
He doesn't deal with any other reason for divorce. He speaks specifically to the point that he wants to make. He does not discuss the notion that there may be other contingencies that also break the marriage bond beyond death. But just because he doesn't discuss that notion doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. For instance, twice in the book of Matthew, first in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32, and secondly in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8, Jesus Christ mentions sexual infidelity as a cause, viable grounds for divorce. And Jesus said, in the context of that discussion, both in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19, specifically says that the individual who remarries under the circumstances of sexual infidelity is not living in adultery. To take the words that Paul used here and stretch them into a great discourse on marriage alone without taking the context and without looking at the rest of Scripture does harm to the intent that Paul is making. Now, why doesn't Paul get into that? Why doesn't Paul say, well, except whenever Jesus said, except for the case of sexual infidelity, except for uh, whatever? Why doesn't he do that? Because that's not his intention. Paul isn't teaching on marriage. We're in the middle of a discourse on law and grace. We're in the middle of a discourse on what it takes to please God, how we're, we're a theological discussion of how we've been set free from the law, but how that grace demands of us that we live according to the moral statutes of God. And so it's not Paul's intention to discuss the scope of qualifications for divorce and remarriage. His intention is to establish how death affects the marriage bond. This is a discussion that carries over from chapter 6. And chapter 6 is about death. It's about how death sets me free from the dominion of sin. So he simplifies the subject. If you married somebody and then you're still married to them and they're alive and you go marry somebody else, you're still bound by marriage and you're committing adultery. The thing that sets you free from that marriage is death. And he deals directly with that point that as long as a woman has a husband, she can't marry another man. She can't step outside of the realm of her marriage and go marry another man without becoming an adulteress. If a woman is married to two men, then she violates every law, except, of course, maybe if you're Mormon, but every law that we, we consider righteous and godly, it, it violates that. You can't be married to two people at the same time. Amen? We all agree on that this morning. Thank God. But if the husband dies, it changes everything. And that's the point. The point is that death sets her free from her obligation to the marriage. The point isn't that death is the only thing that can set her free from that obligation. The point is that death does set her free from obligation to marriage. She can marry another man. Without living in adultery, since death makes the law concerning adultery irrelevant. Remember the whole discussion that we're having here fits into the discussion of the law as a tyrant that began in chapter 6. And the law in this illustration is the first husband. The law is the husband that she was married to the first time. He has dominion over her. He has dominion over his wife. But when he dies, his dominion is broken. 
He no longer has authority over her. As far as the marriage relationship is concerned, his dominion only stretches so far as he's alive. But when he died, it no longer has any authority over her. The point is that believers are made dead to the law, just like the wife is made dead to the marriage. When we die with Christ... When we went to the altar and we repented of our sins and we died with Jesus Christ, we died out to the bondage of the law. Now, Paul used a word for married here that literally means under a husband. It's, it's a word of bondage. It's a word that has to do with, it's similar to being under dominion. And that under dominion is what we were talking about all through chapter 6. We were under the dominion of the law. We were under the dominion of sin. And when he used the word marriage, he used a word that had to do with being under the dominion of a husband. It fits very nicely into the context of chapter 6. To contrast that now, the, 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 the law is like being under dominion, but the grace is like being set free from that dominion. It, like I said last time, it's, it's not about establishing the fact that we can ignore the law. It's about establishing the fact that the motivation for fulfilling God's moral code for our lives has changed. It's not just that we can go live however we want to live, that we can go do whatever we want to do. That's not what Paul means when he says you were set free from the law and now you live by grace. It's about the motivation that compels us to live a life that is pleasing to God. To be under law is like being under or married to a domineering husband. It's like being under a husband that is controlling, that is a tyrant. While being under grace is like being married to a, a different kind of husband. A husband that, that loves and that cherishes and that, and that allows you a certain amount of freedom within that bond of marriage to be the person that you are. There's a difference between being married to, to that tyrant and being married to that loving husband. And the difference is not evident, perhaps, in what you do as much as it is evident in the motivation for what you do. And that's what we spent all of the last lesson, if, you, if, if I've lost you in any of this discussion, talking about the difference between what you do and motivation, you need to go back and listen to the last lesson I taught on Romans because I taught all that entire lesson dealt with that difference and that motivation and, and what we're dealing with here, that, that the change is not necessarily a change in what I do. If I'm married, I'm married. Amen. I live within the bonds of marriage. I, there are certain things that are expected of me as a spouse. Amen. When I got married again, those expectations didn't change. Does that make sense? I mean, you're married to the tyrant. You still pick up his dirty underwear and you still help do the dishes and whatever, clean the house, whatever you do. When you're married to the sweet, loving husband, you still pick up his dirty underwear and do the dishes and clean the house. Amen. The, the, the role stays the same. The motivation changes. The reason why you did it changes. When you were married to the tyrant, you did it out of fear. 
You did it because uh, it was it was an act of self-preservation. If you didn't do it, you the 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 the, the judgment for not doing it was going to be harsh. It was going to be severe. You were going to be mistreated. You were going to be hurt. You you did it out of an act of self-preservation. But now with the second husband, you do the same things that you would have done with the first husband. Now you do them out of love. You do it because you care for him. You do it because you cherish him. You do it out of a deep respect for him. You do it out of the fact that, that you want your husband to come home to a house that, that he feels loved and cherished. and all. It's not, the motivation changes everything. That's the point in this passage is I was, I was married to the law. The law was the tyrant. It governed me. Amen. It had authority over me. It had control over me. And now I've been set free from the law. That doesn't necessarily mean I go live however I want to live. And I, I still live according to the moral code of God. I still live according to what pleases God. I still live according to the word and the will of God. The reason that I do it changed. And that changes everything. Amen. I serve him not out of obligation, not out of fear of retribution, not out of fear of judgment. I serve him from a sense of, of, of love. I love him, and I want to satisfy my bond to him. Amen? So we fulfill the requirements of marriage in both instances. But now we live under different motivation. I'm saved by the grace of God. And so I live a life that glorifies God because I love him. Does that make sense? So verse 4 says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. The word wherefore marks the transition. Illustration is now giving way to application. We're going to get into the spiritual application of what that verses 2 and 3, that, what that illustration meant. And Paul establishes here how that application applies. We are the wife. The law was our first husband. And the risen Christ is our second husband. As, as long as we're living under sin, we're bound to the law. However, when we died with Jesus Christ, we died to the law. And the law no longer has any power over us. We have been born again. And because we're born again, we're set free from that old law. We're free to marry again. And we marry Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. And so we bind ourselves to him. And, and when we bind ourselves to him, then we're equipped to bear fruit, spiritual fruit, unto God. Now, as, as you look at that, the application of the analogy, as we see how it applies, we need to point out the fact that, once again, like the slavery analogy in chapter 6, the analogy is imperfect. Strictly speaking, in, in the analogy, the first husband represents the law. And in the analogy, the husband died. 
And so in, in the story that Paul sold in the first place about the man and the woman who were married, it was the man who died, so the woman was free to marry again. But when he gets to the, the application, when he gets to the wherefore in verse 4, when he begins to apply it, he, he does not talk about the law as if it died. The power of the law has been killed through Jesus Christ, but the law itself didn't die. As a matter of fact, he switches the analogy around and says that we have become dead to the law. So it, 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 in the story, the way we understand it with a fleshly man and woman, the man died so the woman's free to marry again. But Paul is very careful not to say that the law died because the law didn't die. We died out to the law. My brethren, you also are become dead to the law. The law didn't die, we died. The old relationship that we had with the law, that relationship of marriage been under the law, that died when we died in Jesus Christ. We came to Christ and he died, he died for our sins, he died for us, and he underwent that death to set us free from the bonds of that first marriage. And so when we came to him and we identified with his death and repentance and his burial in water baptism and we, we received that spirit of resurrection and life when he filled us with the Holy Ghost, we shared in his death. And, and Paul said, my brethren, ye also are become dead. We have become dead. We've died with Jesus Christ. And when we died with Jesus Christ, we became dead to the law. We became dead to the bonds of that first marriage. We became dead to that, that being under the law, being under the dominion of the law, being under the dominion of sin. All of that died when we died with Jesus Christ. Now, the law didn't die. Amen. But we died to the law. Just like death within a marriage breaks the bonds of that marriage, the death of our old man with Jesus Christ effectively breaks the bonds of our marriage to the law. And that's Paul's chief concern in this passage. He's continuing the emphasis that's already been established in chapter 6. Death removes us from the dominion of the law. Amen. It's important, it's significant in Paul's example that the law doesn't die. There's a reason why I stop and I stress that. Because the moral law of God is still a meaningful thing. It still matters to us what is written in the word of God. Because the law still identifies for us what is pleasing to God. Even in our new relationship, even though we have died out to that old marriage and we were now married to Jesus Christ and we now live under grace instead of under the law, even in that new reality, the law still matters. It never died. It still has significance. What has changed is not our obligation to the moral code of God. What has changed is not our obligation to live according to the will and the word of God. But what has changed is our attitude towards the moral code of God. We no longer view the law as a source of salvation. We no longer view the law as the means of escaping judgment. 
We look to Jesus Christ as the author and finisher of our faith. We look to his death on the cross as the way that we escape judgment. We look to him as the author of our salvation. And that gives us a whole new perspective on the law. We're like the wife, now married to the second husband. When we were married to the first husband, we were bound to him only by duty. We were bound to that mean and miserly man by the conviction that if we didn't obey him, he was going to punish us. But now we're married to grace. We're married to Jesus Christ. And now we willingly and joyfully, we fulfill the bond, the, 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 the covenant of marriage. We do what we're required to do and what we're supposed to do under marriage out of a heart of love and service to God. Amen. In the analogy, in human terms, the wife that Mary's the first husband's a tyrant and he does wrong and he treats her wrong and he abuses her and then ultimately he, he casts her aside and then she marries the second husband and he's a loving man and he's generous and he's kind and he cares for her. She can't do enough to please him. There's no limit to what she'll do for that man. Amen. The first man, she did it out of fear and there were limits. She's going to do just what she's got to do. But the second time, there's no limit. That's the difference in our relationship to the law of God now. Legalism, that idea that I'm saved by the law, focuses on fulfilling the minimum requirement of the law. I'm going to do as much as i got to do to be saved, and that's all I'm doing. Grace requires me to fulfill the law much further. I do this out of love. And there's no limit to what I will do to please him. That's the difference. The legalist mindset focuses on the minimum standard. Grace says, I'm going to fulfill all the law. It, Pastor, it may not be required of me, but I'm going to do it anyway. You may not say that this is a heaven or hell issue. It doesn't really matter to me. I want to be as close to God as I can get. I want to live a life that glorifies him, that magnifies him, that shows forth his goodness and his mercy, and there's no limit to what I will do to please him. Uh, Brother Anderson will testify, pastor would love to pastor people who serve God out of that kind of love and devotion rather than those that are trying to find them. Pastor, show me, is this a heaven or hell issue? Can you define for me just how close to the world I can get and still be saved? There's a difference there. To the heart that says, I want to know how close I can get to Jesus. How close can I live to God? How, how close can my relationship to God become? And the difference is not discarding the law. The difference is the motivation for doing what is required of you by the word and the will of God. We serve the law, that tyrant, out of fear. But now we serve Jesus Christ, our Savior, out of love. And we do so, the last phrase in this verse, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. How do we do that? How do we bring forth fruit unto God? We bear good fruit unto God through our willing obedience to his word. We do what he desires. We do what he even requires of us. Amen. 
we bear good fruit unto God by living a life that is pleasing unto him. When we were dead in our sins, we produced bad fruit. And in verses 5 and 6, we're not going to go over them today because if I do, your roast is going to burn. So I'm going to stop with verse 4. But verses 5 and 6 will get into the mechanics of how we, how we do this. But let me just kind of sum things up this morning. When we were dead in sin, we produced bad fruit. Even when we did the right thing, we did it for the wrong reason. Even when we did good things, we did them for wrong motivations. Our best attempts at righteousness were like an apple that is nice and beautiful and shiny on the outside, but is rotten at the core. You ever pick an apple off a tree and look at it and inspect it and try to make sure there are no wormholes in that thing? And you're pretty reasonably certain you got a good one. It all looks good, but you can't see below the skin. And that wormhole isn't always real evident. And when you start to bite into that thing and you discover that a worm has beat you to it, and it's rotten in there. It's, it's brown and it's ugly and it's no good and, and, and it's disgusting when you bite into that thing. That's the way our attempts at righteousness were before grace, before we entered into this loving relationship with God. We did it out of fear. We did it out of bondage to the law. We did it to try to save ourselves. It was self-motivated. And our best effort to please God was like that apple that's rotten at the core. Because it was produced from a selfish, self-centered motivation. It was all about me. It was all about saving me. It was all about how little can I do or how much do I have to do or just how far do I have to go or just where does the line at, where's the rule at, just what I got to do to measure up, set for me a line and let me see just how, how far, what I have to do. It's all about me. We were trying to live righteous in order to save ourselves, not in order to serve God. And the difference is significant. The grace of God produces good fruit in our lives. The obedience of faith, motivated by our love for God, compels us to produce good fruit, to do the works of righteousness, to live a life of holiness unto God, to live a life that reflects the goodness and the glory of God. This is the final point I'm going to make today. The works may look the same on the outside, but they are inherently different on the inside. The self-centered works of the flesh disgust God. They're like that apple that is rotten at the core. But the God-centered work of the Spirit that produces genuine holiness, that pleases God. And it's not always easy to tell the difference from the outside looking in. The apple looks the same whether the core is rotten or not. To the outward appearance, the end result looks the same, but the difference matters to God. The difference is the motivation. Under law, 
I was trying to save myself. But under grace, I may do the same works that I did under law, but I do them to the glory of God, not to myself. That's the key difference. I want you to notice something here. The life that is lived under grace produces fruit. And in in, in a lot of ways, it looks like the same fruit that the law produced. The difference isn't evident on the outside. It's evident on the inside. It's evident in the heart. As grace produces fruit that is pleasing unto God. Listen to your pastor this morning. Because this is contrary to the way that a lot of people teach grace. Grace is not an excuse to live a life that produces little or no fruit. Grace is not an excuse to live a life that produces the fruit of sin or carnality or flesh. Grace is not an excuse to revel in the works of darkness. Grace is not an excuse to live a life that is governed by your carnal flesh. Grace is about producing fruit that pleases God. That's the end goal of grace. To pervert grace, to say that I can live any way I want to live and still be right with God, is to miss the point of grace entirely. It's about producing fruit that pleases God. And that's very important. A life lived in grace produces fruit that pleases God. In both cases, under law and under grace, is the moral law of God. It's the written word of God that defines for us what pleases God. In both cases, we live to fulfill this word. And based on outward appearance, the end result may look the same under both cases. The works we did in the law, under the law, in many cases look the same as the works that we produce under grace. The difference lies in our heart. One is self-serving. The other serves God. One is born in the flesh. The other is born in the spirit. That's the contrast that Paul focuses on in the last two verses of this section. We'll cover that next week. I want to bring one more passage to your attention as I close. John chapter 15. I'm going to read eight verse, or, or four verses. John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. Jesus speaking here. If you open your King James Bible, these words are written in red. It says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. And if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, my words abide in you. 
You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. I want to point out by way of closing this morning that we can only bear fruit if we abide in Christ and he abides in us. That's the focus of a life of grace. It's not that I can live for myself. It's that I can live for Christ. It's not that I can do whatever pleases me. It's that I live a life that pleases him. Paul said it this way, and I, I quote it often as we wrap up these lessons about sanctification and allowing the Holy Ghost to work in life. Paul said in Galatians, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you hear that? He said, I was crucified with Christ and yet I live, but not I, Christ lives within me. And then he said, how do I live this life, this life that's governed by Christ? How do I live it? I live it in my flesh, in my day-to-day -day living, in the way that I approach life, in the things that you can see. That's how I live it. Oh, but pastor, I love God in my heart, and I serve him in my heart, and I'm holy in my heart, and I live for God in my heart. It just doesn't show up in my actions. That's not what he said. I live in the flesh. Christ lives within me. And that life which I now live, I live in the flesh. And I live by faith of the Son of God. To live by faith, to live in grace is to allow Christ to live in me and it affects the way I conduct myself. That's the difference. I now live by the grace of God. So I'm going to ask as you stand with me on this first Sunday of a brand new year. As we look at a passage of scripture that's been used for a lot of different reasons over the years. We try to get to the very heart of what Paul is talking about this morning. I want to remind you that your life is about abiding in Christ. It's about producing fruit that is pleasing to God. And if we're going to produce fruit that is pleasing to God, we've got to make up our minds. No matter how I lived in 2014, this year, this year, I must abide in Christ, and Christ must abide in me.